Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Job chapter 1. Generally speaking, my intention for every episode of Into the Word is to read and explain one full chapter of the Bible in 15 to 20 minutes or less. On days like today, when we're starting something new, we'll give ourselves a few extra minutes to cover some basic introduction and orientation. The book of Job is one of my favorite books in all the Bible, but I must warn you, it is also one of the hardest reads in all the Bible. It begins with two chapters of fairly straightforward narrative, and it ends with another chapter of fairly straightforward narrative. But in between, there is a long back-and-forth debate between Job and his friends about the nature of suffering and the source of true wisdom and understanding. And that's where things get complicated. But that is also where so much of the richness and blessing is to be found. John Calvin loved this book of the Bible. He preached 159 sermons on the book of Job. And in the first of those 159 sermons, he gives us the key for understanding the incredibly complicated middle part of this book. He says, we have also to note that in the whole dispute, Job maintains a good case and his adversary maintains a poor one. Now there is more, that Job maintaining a good case pleads it poorly, and the others bringing a poor case plead it well. When we shall have understood this, it will be to us, as it were, a key to open to us the whole book. Are you hearing that? He says, Job makes a good case poorly, and his friends make a poor case well. We'll come back to that again and again as we work our way through these various speeches. What Calvin is saying is that Job is right, even though he tends to exaggerate at times. And after all, he's suffering terribly, so we understand that. But even if he does overstate his case from time to time, he is essentially right in what he is saying. He makes a good case. His friends, on the other hand, make a poor case. They are wrong. Their view of the world is too simple, too narrow, and it fails ultimately to account for the hidden mysteries of God's providential working and redemptive purposes. And yet, most of the arguments they marshal in support of their incorrect thesis are orthodox and even useful in almost every other circumstance you can imagine. So that's why you have to pay very close attention while reading the book of Job. Lazy readers and sloppy readers can actually find themselves appealing to things said in Job in order to make points that are directly contradicted by the book as a whole. You have to remember that this whole debate and dialogue isn't settled until God shows up and breaks the tie, as it were, at the end. 
So the reader has to constantly sift through everything he or she is seeing and hearing in order to remove the excess from the speeches of Job and to spot the error in the speeches of his friends. The book of Job is incredibly demanding. And yet, the rewards it offers more than make up for the effort. If you were to ask me to summarize the benefits of reading and studying this book, I would want to mention at least these five things. Number one, it provides a necessary counterbalance to the book of Proverbs. If you only had the book of Proverbs, you might think that good things will always happen to good people and bad things will always happen to bad people. After all, the book of Proverbs says stuff like, Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity. Proverbs 22, 8. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to God and he will repay him for his deed. Proverbs 19, 17. So that sounds for all the world like if you're sinful, then you're going to experience calamity. And if you're righteous, then God is going to reward you with riches and health and other blessings. But that's why God wrote other books in the Bible. Tremper Longman III says here, Proverbs raises a disturbing issue. The sages often motivate wise behavior by linking it to reward. But in reality, bad things happen to good people. The wise are not always rewarded as they expect. That raises the question of the justice of God. Both Job and Ecclesiastes struggle with the apparent disconnect between God's justice and our actual life experiences. Indeed, the message of both the book of Job and Ecclesiastes should keep people from reading the rewards of Proverbs with undue optimism, closed quote. In street-level English, what I'm saying is this, the book of Job is the antidote to our natural inclination towards the prosperity gospel. It reminds us that half a truth is often more dangerous than no truth at all. Second thing I'd say is that Book of Job serves as an aid to our contemplation of human suffering. Job helps us think about one of the most confusing things we are ever likely to encounter. As we listen to Job's friends, we hear a lot of what we tend to say to ourselves when we're suffering. We, we hear the whispers of our enemy, often, as in Job's case, coming through the mouth of our friends. But we also hear the ring of falsehood. We, we know what is actually going on. And we know that what they are saying doesn't actually apply in Job's case. And that reminds us very helpfully that there is a hidden world of divine purpose behind every experience of human pain. That makes us cautious. That, that makes us a little more careful about what we say to others, and it makes us a little more careful about what we hear from ourselves and from our adversary when he is speaking to us, sometimes through the mouths of our well-meaning friends when we're going through suffering and times of trial. Thirdly, Book of Job provides an example of endurance under trial. James 5.11 says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. See, God says at the end that Job had the right of it, even if he sometimes said too much and too profusely. Nevertheless, he was not 
wrong. Therefore, we have God's encouragement here in the book of James to look at Job as a guide for how to handle these sorts of situations should they ever visit us in this life. We get a sense of what we can say and what we shouldn't, what questions we can ask, and what hope and encouragement we can expect. The book of Job is a guide and an encouragement for sufferers. Then fourthly, it encourages humility of mind and lowliness of thinking. Neither Job nor his friends ever really knew what was going on behind the scenes that truly explained the extreme nature of Job's predicament. That's one of the major points being made in the book. We really don't know so much of what is going on in the universe. Only God knows. And therefore, we should probably say a little less than we do, and we should probably say those things with a little less confidence than we often tend to say them. This is what Peter means by lowliness of mind in 1 Peter 3.8. It means remembering that we see through a glass darkly, the Apostle Paul said that, and therefore we should trust the Word of God highly and trust our own thoughts and opinions lowly. Then lastly, or fifthly, the book of Job points people to Jesus Christ, the ultimate innocent sufferer and the one who finally solves the problem of evil in this world. Job comes to the conclusion that what he needs is some kind of redeemer, some kind of advocate who will plead his case before God. Now, it's always just a hope in Job, at at times a hope that Job seems to be barely holding on to, but it's a hope. And of course, in the New Testament, Job's hope becomes our faith. What he looked forward to, we now look back on. On the other side of the cross, in the empty tomb, we see Jesus living before the Father ever to make intercession for us. That's the ultimate reason for the book of Job. It reminds us of our great need and of God's great provision through the person and work of Christ. Thanks be to God. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, one of the first things we have to decide as readers is whether or not we understand Job to have been a historical character. Some interpreters understand this whole story as a sort of giant parable, like the prodigal son. True, but not historically true. But others consider it theological history. Obviously, the speeches were not originally delivered as poetry. The historical events have been organized and presented for maximum teaching effect. But the events as described did actually happen. Harold Decker tells us that Calvin took that view. He says, Calvin identifies Job as an actual historical figure of the lineage of Esau, probably living in the Mosaic era. Calvin came to that conclusion through careful study of the names mentioned in the story as compared to the genealogies preserved in other parts of the Bible. And I think he makes a very compelling case. I certainly don't see how you could disprove it, and I haven't read anything more convincing. One of Job's friends does appear to be a great-great-great-grandson of Esau. We'll get to that in subsequent episodes. So I think it appropriate to think of Job as a non-Jew in the Abrahamic tradition 
who knew and worshipped the one true God and who experienced horrific suffering and who became the subject of much theological and ethical discussion in his day. It would seem then that this story was subsequently arranged and recorded by an inspired biblical author, perhaps by Moses, perhaps by somebody else. I believe that there was a man named Job and that he was blameless and upright. He feared God and he turned away from evil. Verse 2, there were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one of them on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. These verses intend to establish that Job was, in fact, a righteous man, not a perfect man. Job never claims to be sinless, and that isn't the argument of the book. The argument of the book is that there is no apparent connection between Job's sin and Job's suffering. The friends argue that Job's big suffering must have been caused by Job's big sin, but that isn't the case. These verses are telling us that that isn't the case. Job was a good man a blessed man, a just man, a pious man, and he was a good dad. He prayed for his kids, and he was careful, meticulous even, with respect to his religious observances. Verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The sons of God here refers to angelic beings, as that expression often does in other places in the Bible. These are overseeing angels, principalities, you might say, and they receive their marching orders and their limitations from the Lord God. God is sovereign over all things, and he often works through intermediaries. And Satan, apparently, is one of those intermediaries. His name is means the accuser, and he acts here in accordance with his nature. He is hell-bent on doing harm to human beings. But as we see in the account, he can only do that which he is permitted to do and that which ultimately serves God's good and benevolent purpose. Verse 7, the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Now stop right there and notice that God initiates the conversation with Job. It's God who puts Job on the agenda that day, not Satan. Do you see that? Satan is a dog on a chain. He will always act according to his nature, but he can only do what God ordains and permits. And everything he does 
regardless of his own wicked intentions, everything he does must ultimately serve God's good and saving purposes. Francis Anderson says usefully, there is evil here, but not dualism. That is so important to understand. We are not pawns in a battle between two co-equal forces. No, the devil is just a dog on a chain. His intentions are irrelevant. He is not driving the action here. God is. Everybody knows that. Job knows that. He says that. His friends know that. They say that. In fact, after chapter 2, nobody mentions the devil ever again in this story. He does not matter. This is ultimately an interaction between God and Job. So the Lord says, Have you considered my servant Job? Verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Touch what he has and we shall see who he is. Satan makes the argument that Job is a mercenary. He only worships God for what he can get out of it. But if we take away all of his blessings and all of his protections, he will curse you to your face, God. That's what Satan says. Verse 12, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. God lengthens the devil's chain and he goes out from the presence of the Lord in order to begin attacking the righteous man, Job. But of course, Job has no idea that all of this is going on. Matthew Henry reminds us, we must never think ourselves secure from storms while we are in this lower region. Just because everything looks like it's going well for us down here doesn't mean that things couldn't turn around in a heartbeat. There is a hidden world of divine purpose behind all our circumstances here on earth. And Job is just about to find that out. Verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. In four consecutive disasters, 
Job's life is turned completely upside down. His business is destroyed. His wealth is taken away. And his children, his his 10 young children, the Hebrew refers to them as little ones. It seems that they were all unmarried. These were young people, teenagers, and even younger. And all of them swept away in a natural disaster. But of course, Job knew that it wasn't a natural disaster. He knows that there is no such thing as a natural disaster. Listen to these verses, verses 20 to 21. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Did you hear that? The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job knew where these disasters came from. They came from the Lord. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Even without my blessings, even without my protections, God is still God, and God is still good. That, my friends, is the voice of faith. That is what trusting in God looks like when all around you has grown dim. That is a man who knows who he is and who knows who God is. Job came into this world with nothing, and he only ever had what God gave him. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of of the Lord. Verse 22. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job did it right, just like God said he would. He mourned, he wept, he fell down, he cried aloud, he was human, but he did not curse God and die. He remembered who he was and he remembered who God is. And he worshiped. That's not the end of the story. But it is a marvelous beginning. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One, in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the Into the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word 
is a lamp unto my feet. 